Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. Again, my name is Brad Udall, and I have this terrific title, Senior Water and Climate Research Scientist and Scholar. And my wife regularly informs me the only three words in that are true, that I study water and climate. And of course, I'm really senior. (laughs) How many of you recognize this slide of the Oroville Spillway in California from 2017? Um, just a classic case, right, of aging infrastructure creating problems conf- uh, along with climate change. The guy who designed this told us that this was actually his first project out of college, and we can only hope that his second was not a nuclear reactor containment vessel. <laughs> so here are my take-home points. Um, water cycle intimately tied to climate. The water cycle moves heat in addition to moving water and that climate models incorporated the water cycle in the 1960s very early on. Um, This water cycle is changing rapidly, and we first noted, at least in the American West, many of these changes in the early 2000s. It's especially important in snow-dominated systems, as Scott alluded to, and it's gonna continue to change. These effects are almost always bad, and you can look at the California drought or the ongoing Colorado River Basin drought or even some of the flooding associated with Harvey and Imelda and the 2019 floods. And that our water management and infrastructure is struggling to catch up with this. So I've got five things I want to talk about. One's this, the water cycle connection to climate. The, one, the second one is basically how is this whole thing changing? Two case studies here, Colorado River, the ongoing drought from 2000 to 2019, and our Midwest floods. And then I want to walk you through about five or six scientific studies just to get you an idea of when we knew this. Um, This is the fractional change in winter snowfall. So 75% of these dots indicate more rain and less snow in the American West. And if you're from the East, I'm sure we can come up with an image that looks a lot like this. This is from 2006 to give you an idea. So hydrologic cycle, one of the first additions to climate modeling. You know, that 1890s radiative transfer, how many people know about Arrhenius' study where he did a doubling of CO2 experiment on paper, right, came up with you double CO2, you get five Celsius warming. Look at the 1960s there, nonlinear fluid dynamics, hydrological cycle. And of course, you gotta add it to these models because again, it moves heat in addition to water. This big grandiose cycle that moves water around the planet involves things like the Gulf Stream that just gigajoules of heat moving, as well as when you evaporate water from the oceans, that energy of evaporation is embedded in the vapor. And when that vapor moves, you've actually moved energy as well. And when that vapor recondenses, it actually is, it's the energy that powers hurricanes and, and, and uh, convective storms like thunderstorms. Here's a 1974 paper that basically did Arrhenius's experiment from 1899, where they double CO2 and see what happens in a global circulation or global climate model. And I'll note, and these are the couple of the fathers of climate modeling, the very bottom here. It is also shown that the doubling of carbon dioxide significantly increases the intensity of the hydrologic cycle of the model, 1974. 
So there's our water cycle, a thousand cubic kilometers, almost an unbelievable quantity evaporates from the surface of our oceans every day. Most of that actually gets returned right away, but some of it makes it basically onto land where it then becomes the water cycle as we know it. So what happens to this climate cycle or this water cycle as you heat the planet? Where it precipitates changes. When in the year changes, the type of precip changes, more rain and less snow here, especially important in the American West. The intensity of precipitation, more when it does precipitate. The frequency of precip, we actually get more dry days with the potential for longer droughts and when it does precipitate, it's more intense. Amount of evaporation or sublimation, which is when you have snow and it goes directly to vapor bypassing the liquid state increases, and that's going to include soils and water bodies and snowpacks. And also plants use more water, as Scott indicated. This atmosphere actually holds more water in a nonlinear fashion. You can call it a thirstier atmosphere. And so it helps drive this sucking, if you will, from the land surface. Snowmelt and runoff dates occur earlier in the year. The annual pattern of runoff in our snowmelt dominated system changes. So in places like California, you see more in winter when that snowpack was historically frozen, more in spring and less in late summer. Quality of water changes. You end up with, it's warmer, um, the potential for more harmful algal blooms and, and less oxygen. And climate change also impacts fires and dust on snow and human water demands and those in turn impact water supply and water demand. And then finally, let me say that all water management is based on the statistics of the 20th century. And so when those statistics change, things like how big is your curb or how big is your spillway, how much water does your city need to get through the summer all change and create interesting opportunities but also problems as well for water managers. Both the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and our own National Climate Assessment have a 10-panel line graph um, called Key Warming Indicators. And this is the cartoon version of that. And I'll note that seven of those key warming indicators are in some way connected to the water cycle. And so if you look at international or national or even state assessments of climate change, changes in the water cycle oftentimes are in the top three of the most critical aspects of climate change. And I won't walk you through all these, but I mean glacier volumes and decline in northern hemisphere snow cover, um, sea surface temperatures, ocean uh, sea level, right, is partly because of these glaciers uh, exuding uh, additional water. So water cycle, it's key to our climate. And so a couple case studies here. Um, and this is what I work on a lot. I'm actually not going to spend that much time on this. But here's an image from a paper that I did with Overpeck now at Michigan in 2017. Here's the contents of the two largest reservoirs in the United States going back to the 1930s when Lake Mead filled and this enormous drought that starts about 2000 where we lose about half of the contents. Here's what are called the upper basin natural flows, the flows that go in here, the flows without the, with the impacts of humans removed. You can see this long-term decline, and especially this period here, which is 17% below the 20th century average. 
upper basin precip going back all the way to 1895 effectively flat and then upper basin temperature now almost two Fahrenheit warmer. And if you do the math, this current drought with its 17% decline in flow cannot be completely explained by a reduction in precipitation. And what Overpeck and I suggested and others have backed us up on is about a third of this flow loss is due to higher temperatures. And if you wanna know why, it's just that additional evaporative load. And here's the contents of those two large reservoirs through the beginning of August. Um, that this image here is just this part here where we call it a hot drought as opposed to a dry drought in the 1950s. And if you're curious about 2019, reservoir contents went up less than 10%. It would take a number of 2019s to restore this system to full. 2018, was record warm and dry in large parts of the Southwest. Here's precipitation, record driest in 124 years, centered over the Four Corners region. And um, mean temperature, uh, you can see the record warmest over large portions of the American Southwest. Here's Lake Powell, second largest reservoir in the U.S., the one upon which the upper basin states in the Colorado River Basin depend upon to make their lower basin compact deliveries. And just to put 2019 in historic context, we had an enormous avalanche cycle, very late runoff, but it wasn't as big as 2011. It's only one year after that record warm and dry. It's unlikely to occur frequently. It's a great example of what Dan Swain at UCLA and uh, Nature Conservancy calls weather whiplash. And note that we can and still uh, set cold records at anywhere from one to two or one to four cold to warm ratio. Still can get cold. And Lake Powell, because 2018 was so bad, here's the difference between those two years. It's a grand total of about 20 feet difference in elevation. Didn't do very much for the ongoing drought basically undid what 2018 did. So these are the, this is the wind field for the bomb cyclone that occurred earlier this year. Bomb cyclone being a term for 24 millibars of pressure drop in 24 hours. If you look at it, it's kind of beautiful, this pattern. Um, it almost looks like a hurricane, right? It almost looks like a tropical cyclone, yet it's over land. And what happened here? record-setting surface low pressures in many locations, which resulted in category two like hurricane wind pressures with similar winds. So 70 plus mile an hour winds in places like the Front Range and even in Texas. And you ended up with this massive flooding. Notice the ice here, an important part of the story. And so what contributed to this? Well, first off, wettest winter in U.S. history. Clearly a climate change signal here. So 124 years, Tennessee wins the, the, the record wettest, but look at all these other Midwestern states and just how wet they were. And so you had um, a wet winter, you had rain, intense rain with snow on the ground and wind with frozen ground with little capacity to absorb moisture. You had ice dams on rivers, levee breaches along the Missouri. You had a tremendous loss of stored grain and animals and structures. 
And to make matters worse, if you're a farmer, you couldn't plant as a result. So that's sort of like saying you can't report for the next year, uh, not real sure what you're going to do about your income, good luck. Uh, Nebraska alone, a billion dollars in damage, 2,000 homes destroyed, 340 businesses. And on top of the recent 2011 floods, three billion total. So let me just review a few of the studies. This kind of gets to when did we know this? Um, Kevin Trenberth's a scientist at NCAR just down the road. Same with Dye, Rasmussen, and Parsons. And this title of this study is The Changing Character of Precipitation from 2003, so 16 years ago. And basically, greenhouse gases heat the surface of the Earth. Of course, the water cycle is heat-driven. And the point they were trying to make is that the characteristics of precipitation are just as important as the amount. And those characteristics include intensity, frequency, duration, as well as amount. And an important factor here is this. So we think global precipitation goes up about 1% per degree Celsius, but atmospheric moisture and rainfall rates increase at about 7% per Celsius. And if you do the math, if you kind of do the math and think this through, what it means is that we end up with these extremes in both floods and droughts that increase. Hence this idea that intensity, frequency, and duration all change in ways that are really different than what humans and natural systems are used to. Back in 2005, these first studies came out on big declines in snowpack. And some of these studies went back to 1925. These images are actually from 1950. But they looked at 800 different locations. And if you'll note, many of the higher losses are in these warmer maritime climates, where it's really easy to go from 29 degrees when it snows to 33 degrees when it now rains. And recently, scientists have coined a new term, or two new terms, warm snow drought and dry snow drought. Warm snow drought being when it's too warm, you have normal precip, but it's just too warm to snow. Dry snow drought being the normal kind of snow drought we used to think about. So here's a study from 2006, and Scott again talked about fires. Um, this was the main cover of science, and basically these red bars show large fires increased in the 1980s, bigger fires, longer fire duration, and longer fire seasons, and a lot of it uh, related to when the snow melts off, right? When, when that snow melts off sooner, you get a bigger fire season. This is a 2008 study also in science by a number of authors from Scripps as well as elsewhere. And what they looked at was the proportion of snow water equivalent to precipitation. You can see these strong declines in the Cascades and Rockies and Sierras. January, February, March, minimum temperature strongly up. And then river flow central tendency down. And it's one of the first formal attribution studies that pointed out that 60% of these trends are human-induced. So 11 years ago, 2008. I don't have a water quality study, but it's important enough, especially in the context of the East, to talk about. Water temperatures, of course, follow air temperatures. Less dissolved oxygen as it warms. And if you're a critter, you have a higher metabolism in that, uh, in that water that has less oxygen. Some have termed it a metabolic squeeze. 
Have you ever been in a water body like a lake where your feet dangle down in really cold water and your upper body's in warm water? That's a stratification. It naturally occurs. That warmer layer sits on top because it's lighter. And so lakes every year turn over once in the fall and once in the spring when the entire column is the same temperature. But under climate change, that summer stratification period lasts longer. And it means that lower layer, that cold lower layer that gets oxygenated twice a year, once in the spring and once in the fall, has a longer period without being re-oxygenated. So we end up with lakes that are stratified longer. I'm sure everybody in the room knows about eutrophication. This is like Erie here. It's already a big problem. It's part nutrients, but it's also impacted by temperatures and, and solar energy. Uh, harmful algal blooms, increasingly a problem. Even in this state, shockingly, with its cold water in 2018, we saw a lot of these occur in places that I wouldn't have guessed them to occur. This increase in intense rainfall now picks up more sediments and moves them into water bodies. And in a snowmelt dominated system where you have this peak in the spring and then this declining limb, what it means is that declining limb actually gets lower than it did historically, which means it can get warmer and has less ability to dilute both air temperature, if you will, warming, as well as any other kind of pollution that shows up in it. This paper from 2008 is quite famous, done by a number of hydrologists and entitled Stationarity is Dead, Wither Water Management. And this gets to the point I was making earlier that all our water planning is actually based on the statistics of the 20th century. Yet if those statistics change underneath us, then basically things have been sized wrong or management decisions are no longer optimal to meet the needs of the 21st century. And so as the 21st century moves forward, those past statistics are less and less valuable. And it means how we manage existing project, projects, we need to rethink. And if you want to build a new one, you really have a problem trying to figure out what exactly, how's it, how is it going to operate? Um, I don't have a, a general management article other than this one. But these are out of the National Climate Assessment Volume 2. And it gets me back to my original slide here. This deteriorating water structure uh, compounds climate risk. Many of these dams are 50 and, uh, and more years old. And you end up with problems like this. Or as we experienced in the 1980s, Glen Canyon Dam spillways actually started to disintegrate at the one time we needed to use them. Um, extreme precip precipitation events lead to more severe floods. and greater risk of failure. Um, our design, operation, and financing typically don't account for this changing climate. And current risk management does not often consider compound extremes or the risk of cascading infrastructure failure like this, where almost 200,000 people were evacuated for multiple days from the downstream communities. And you know, we need strategies that can address risk that changes over time. And there are regulatory and institutional constraints to actually doing this. For example, our flood control rule curves generally require an EIS. And the Army Corps is loath to change these. So let me close. In March of 2017, here in this state, up until uh, December, it didn't snow. It snowed then 
heavily in December, January, and February, and water managers were licking their chops, thinking they were going to have this tremendous runoff. And then March occurred, 9 Fahrenheit above average, and the spigot shut off. Um, and all of a sudden, what looked like a great year turned into just a normal year. Climate change already impacting supplies. It's going to get worse. Some people talk about a new normal. I, I don't like that terminology because it implies predictability, maybe new abnormal. And if you're going to plan hotter everywhere, shifting runoff patterns, more year-to-year -year weather variability, there's a substantial flow reduction risk here in the American Southwest, along with increased flood risks almost everywhere, higher water temperatures, more fires, decreased water quality. And if you want to be an optimist, there you go. Opportunity for change. And I think that's it.